the lie the poetry tells is constant as the truth itself without the lies and the false beliefs where would we be where would we be welcome to the state of the theory podcast i'm hannah and i'm an india and we are your theory doctors Welcome back. Hello. We are in episode seven. Just yes. keeps going, doesn't keeps it? Keeps going. What are we talking about today? Today we are talking about the UK government's announcement of its budget. Yes. So la- the previous week was budget week here in Britain. And I call it Red Lunchbox Day. Why is it Red Lunchbox it's Day? It's Red Lunchbox Day because traditionally the Chancellor who oversees the budget in the UK brings out an old red suitcase and stands in front of the press for photographs and holds it out um, in a very awkward fashion and it's just this, this weird red box um, that he carries with him to his budget announcement. All, it's the ministerial red box. All ministers have a red box where all their papers are kept. It's one of the many old traditions that Britain has. So yeah, so the last previous week was was budget week and we thought uh there are lots of interesting deeply problematic deeply unlikable things that have come out of the budget uh and the way it was reported in the mainstream media. So we thought we would spend this episode looking at the budget and looking at the politics behind some of the policies that have been announced. Yes, some interesting ones this yes. year. There's always always interesting um aspects to the budget and and the the performance of the budget mm. itself is is a an interesting thing as well. Um it functions very differently from the budget in the United States, I think which made the news a few years ago because the government actually shut down mm. Um, for a long time in the United mm. States mm. O- over the passing of the budget, whereas mm. in the UK, um, the budget gets debated, but it is it happens mm. um, whether or not mm. the opposing parties like it. Well, um, actually, I mean, it's if the if the opposing parties don't like it, and if the opposing parties can rally enough votes. In other words, if the budget doesn't get passed, then the government falls. So uh, at the end of the budget debate in Parliament, there is a vote. And if the government doesn't have enough of a majority uh, in order to get at least 50% of of the members of Parliament to vote for it, then the budget will not pass and the government will fall and there's an election. Um, So that's how that would work in the British system. When was the last time that happened? Mm, Not in a while. Not in a while. It's been a long time. Government majority has been... I mean, government major- majority is only four this time. Yeah. Um, but it's still... Yeah. Yeah. Mm. It's... Um, yeah, this budget... The the performance of it is... I mean, there's the... Mm. It's quite interesting, of course, because the, the government will leak certain elements of the, the budget to the press beforehand, and the press mm. will start commenting on the budget... Um, the the opposition parties also hear these same things at the same time. They don't get to see it beforehand. Mm. Um, only the government knows. And the chancellor then prepares a very long speech where he 
outlines some of the main points of the budget, but not all of it gets presented, of course, because it's a very long document, um, and there's a lot of money at stake. And then um, the press will then debate as as the budget is being announced and then in, in the following days. And for us, one of the things that we've noticed particularly is how the press has dealt with some of the aspects of this year's budget, mm-hmm. which I think we're going to talk about quite a bit. We are. Should we say a little bit about the kind of government? Yes. I.e. the ideological position of the current government first. Yes. Yes. Um, so, the the Prime Minister is David Cameron, the Chancellor who is in charge of the budget, so to speak, is George Osborne, and it is a very conservative government. It is a government that has used the spectre of austerity and the credit crunch in order to bring in lots and lots of cuts uh, to public spending in a way that is as I think we'll go on to argue, deeply ideological, and we'll explain how it is ideological specifically and what political work it is doing in terms of redefining the boundaries between the public sector and the private sector and the the individual and the the civil society as well. Yes, there's a massive reorganisation going on in the UK right now around... um, where the state operates, how it operates, who it operates through, um, and where money goes. Yes. Um, the UK is is in serious fiscal transition, mm. I would argue. Mm. Um, and it gets quite complicated as well because the UK has um, also a political system of devolution yes. in Scotland and Northern Ireland and Wales. And devolution operates differently in each of those contexts. And Mm. so the budget um, impacts on people very differently depending on where in the UK they live. And um, that makes it quite complicated, but also interesting for us. Yes. So what are some of the specific highlights, so to speak, of the budget that we wanted to talk about today? Highlights this year... um, were the cutting of disability funds and the increase in government assistance for young people saving money yes. um, in what the government is calling the lifetime ISA. Um, also the sugar tax, which of course to my American ears is mm. quite funny mm. um, given the the role of the taxation of luxury food items in American historiographies of our revolution um, and our independence. But there is a new government tax coming in on um, sugared beverages. Um, And interestingly as well, the the so-called tampon tax, which has made its way into discourse in the United States as well, um, the tampon tax was not included in the budget this year. um, But there has been a lot of debate in the mainstream media and in the government about um, reducing or eliminating a tax on feminine hygiene products. Um, And that's also made its way into talks about the budget this year. So I think we're going to touch on all three. Yes. And then uh, at the end, we are going to think about 
some specific uh, consequences for various public sector institutions, such as, um, in particular, the schools yeah. and the National Health Service, and what the government's fiscal policy is going to do to these these public institutions. Yes. So shall we start with the sugar tax? Yeah. The history of the, sh- of the sugar tax. Yes. Um, the sugar tax is about regulating public health through fiscal policy. And of course, whenever whenever public health is dealt with in terms of individual taxes, um, it, it is whether or not it's designed this way, mm. the impact, of course, hits working class and lower class families the hardest. Um, we've seen this with alcohol duties, with tax on tobacco products, and even with the banning of drugs, it impacts differently based on class lines yes. and racial lines as well. Um, the sugar tax in its current iteration gained a lot of publicity because of the celebrity chef Jamie Oliver. He has been a huge proponent of things like the sugar tax. He has been an outspoken critic of products, processed food products that contain a lot of sugar. Um, whether or not, of course, his, his food corporations subscribe to his professed ideals or not is another another question and um but he has been very vocal um and has spoken to the government and has has been on tv a lot um discussing the sugar tax basically what it's done is the the government has decided to tax sugary drinks um based on the concentration of sugar per 100 milliliters Mm. something like that um and it's Basically, a tax on sodas, mm. juices. Um, I think fruit juice is exempt. Is it? Yes. Um, but The orange juice yes, lobby. Yes. <laughs> um, and, you know, fruit juice is, is, is in yeah. scare quotes, healthy and healthier compared to... Yeah. I think squash, which yes. we don't drink squash in the United States, but think of it like a, a an awful-tasting Kool-Aid mm. kind of a thing. It's um, a very, very concentrated liquid that you mix with water yeah. or soda water and it's it's cheap and mm. so it's often given to children at nursery or in um, school at snack time um, kind of like tang mm. um, which I remember of course from my days at summer camp so this is the target demographic right yeah. it's trying to reduce children's consumption of things like squash and soda what else I mean the the, the middle class the middle class reaction, of course, mm. was the tonic water mm. <laughs> m- might very well yes. be included in in this. And and we we mentioned the celebrity chef Jamie Oliver. Jamie Oliver has a history of um, promoting what he sees as healthy options, f- specifically for kids. So he had a crusade against unhealthy school dinners. Yes, uh, and got pretty much universal popularity in Britain for promoting the cause of healthy eating for for children specifically. And then there was, at the time, this is going back a few years, there was a a particularly controversial moment which was used to demonise working class parents specifically even more, which was um, 
after Jamie Oliver instituted a health eating menu for school dinners, there were sh- uh, newspaper shots, photographs of mothers passing um, bags of chips to their kids over the school fence because the chips were not allowed. Um, so there is a way in which Jamie Oliver's history in this particular uh, in this particular debate predisposes the largely middle class me- media uh, to idolize him for his role in generating healthier children for our society. Yes, he actually went to the United States as well with his TV program, um, and there was a. The reaction was twofold, of yeah. course. There was the American, the kind of conservative yes. American reaction of what's this British guy coming over here telling us how to live our lives, telling us how to feed our children, what does he know? And then there was a more liberal reaction, which was this is deeply patronizing rhetoric, and it's it has not taken into account our own community efforts to change the food and the access to food that children have, particularly children from... Um, poor or um, ethnic minority backgrounds. Mm-hmm. And um, the class differences are quite stark, and he mm. was completely unaware of any sort of cultural or social mm. differences mm. that the American context might have. Mm. Um, and, of course, the, the image is him dressed as a vegetable crying on camera, mm. and that's the, mm. the iconic mm. image for Americans mm. of Jamie Oliver on TV. And so he is, he's a crusader. He is a middle-class savior to a certain extent of of our collective children. Who speaks in a very fake working-class accent, the the English phrase is Dems Estuary accent. It's a very affected, faux working-class accent, which allows him to, to... apparently identify with with the working class demographic, which is completely inauthentic. Yes, the question of accents for um, maybe those listeners who aren't familiar with the British context, Mm. um, accents in the UK are an entry point Mm. or a barrier to certain Mm. um, professional and public spaces. And... um, it's a it's a hugely important aspect of class identity in the UK, mm. um, and the the way that people um, modulate and change and police ways of speaking mm. in the UK is mm. is very interesting. Mm. Um, but that's Jamie Oliver does that, and mm. you know it's it's mm. it's a part of social and political mm. life here. I think it it might be useful at this point to just say what our problems are with the sugar tax you know why why is it a bad thing to discourage children from drinking sugary drinks <laughs> because i think i mean it's it's commonsensically yeah it's it's a, an easy case to make right yes sugary drinks are bad for you children shouldn't be encouraged from encouraged to drink sugary drinks yeah so why why do we have a problem with the sugar tax i you and i are 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 also very crit- I mean we could have done an episode on on big agriculture and on sugar 
hidden sugar in processed food, and we would have been very critical of corporations and the idea of the food industry, and we would have spoken about how terrible these products are. You mm. know, we could have talked about mm. this in any number yes. of ways. Um, we are not advocates for Coca-Cola, mm. certainly not. No. Um, and I think this particular issue is so fascinating because we're interested in the class element here. Mm. Um, and, and also, I mean, in the United States, there's very much a, a, a race element as well. Mm. Um, this is about, this is an, a public health agenda, but its effect serves to reinforce and further monitor and control particular class mm. groups. And that is the lower class, the working class. Yes. Um, families who don't necessarily have access to alternatives. We could talk about obesity and the obesity, the so-called obesity epidemic in any number of ways. Um, but for us, this is, this is a, a dehumanizing institutionalization of working class families and poor families as being unable to make decisions for themselves. And mm -hmm. so food products need to be regulated in such yes. a way that poor people in particular yes. cannot afford them. Yes. Um, because the sugar tax isn't going to affect you no. or me. Yes in any particularly yes. dramatic way. But if I live in an area where, for example, my water supply isn't necessarily as clean or as trustworthy, and I need to provide my children with drinks, yes. you know, it, this, is, this becomes a serious issue. Um, and also... Policies like the sugar tax are being instituted around the same time as huge cuts are being made in the provision of healthcare, huge cuts are being made in terms of uh, schools selling off playing fields. For, also the for, child benefit. Yes. Right, child benefit. So families in the UK receive, rather than receiving a, a tax deduction, receive assistance from the government for their children to help supplement their income to help take care of their children. And child benefits have been cut um, and further regulated, while at the same time now this particular tax will impact on those families who will have been most directly affected by the cut in child benefit. So yes, this reminds me a little bit of a recent sociological study that was profiled on BBC Radio 4's programme Thinking Aloud, um, where Vicky Harmon, who's senior lecturer at Royal Holloway University of London, uh, was interviewed about their research on the performance of making lunchboxes, back lunch, and they, they called their article Mothers on Display because that is what many of their interviews felt was happening. They, they were being judged on their parenting ability based on what they put in their school, their children's school lunchboxes. Um, and this study outlined various ways in which the school was policing 
what children were allowed to eat for lunch and what they weren't. So chocolate bars would be confiscated, for example, and even more horrendously, there were one school uh, provided a separate top table where children would be allowed to go and sit and eat only if they had a strong enough record in, in, in bringing healthy lunches. And of course, none of this has any room for the class distinctions and the fact that certainly in Britain and in America, as far as I know, it is much, much more expensive to eat healthily than it is to buy processed food, which is much cheaper. It's not just cost as well, it's time. Mm. So um, if you are raised by two parents who work, for example, especially if you're raised by parents who work long or um, odd hours, chances are they are unable to devote the time to making you a sandwich, for example, mm. or making you um, cut up vegetables and fruit and that sort of thing. Um, and so we'll resort to buying pre-prepared items like Lunchables or, or what have you. Um, and, you know, that is that is my experience um, for sure. My, my mom was making my lunches before she was dropping me off at, you know, quarter to seven in the morning um, at pre-school daycare um, every morning. And so there's also an element of, of time as capital. Mm -hmm. um, and it's not just, I, I mean, there's there's a couple things that we could say here. The, on the one hand, there's... There's a question of what what kind of information and evidence are are schools using to identify what is a healthy lunch and what isn't, um, because of course n nutrition and ideas around nutrition and healthy eating do change, mm -hmm. um, and it is a, a a whole kind of disciplinary area in which academics and scientists debate and conduct studies. Um, so there's there's that question of, of what actually is healthy food versus what isn't. Um, but there's also, um, you know, it's, it goes beyond whether or not you have an apple mm. or a bounty bar in your lunchbox. Um, you know, my experience going to a, a, a very, very wealthy private school in, in Marin County um, for high school um, was quite fascinating for me because my family used most of its its expendable resources in order to send me to this school for high school. Um, and so I was at once an insider to a certain extent, but also an, an outsider. And um, I had never eaten organic food. Um, a lot of my food was was what I now call single mom food, mm. um, chicken nuggets or, or fish sticks, mm. fish fingers as they're called here. Um, a lot of leftovers, um, you know, the, the kinds of things that I thought all kids ate. Yes. And then, you know, I get to this school where we have a massive garden out back called the Garden of Hope, which is an organic garden that is used um, in pedagogical terms and also ideological terms mm. um, to teach children about what is what is healthy and what is not, and then linking this to, you know, discourses of sustainability mm. and climate change and that sort of thing. And every Earth Day, we would have a full day of Earth Day related activities. And there was always, without fail, a speaker mm. or multiple who would come and tell us how 
we all needed to eat organic food. Otherwise, climate change would destroy us all. I mean, that's a, an exaggeration slightly. Um, it's, it's, mm. it's not so mm. much of an exaggeration that it's irrelevant. And I would sit there and I'd listen to these things and I'd say, yeah, thank you for telling me that. What do I, how do I go home and say to my mom, my coupon clipping, you know, saving like crazy mom who is, you know, putting me, working her butt off to put me through this school and say, mom, I think we need to be buying organic food now. That's, it's fundamentally insulting. And it was so alienating and isolating to me. And I never once said it to anyone at the school at the school. I just mm. went along and, you know, would plant my fava beans mm. during our weekly time in the garden and, um, you know, eat, eat my lunch that they provided for us. And I just, you know, I, I lived with it. And I think, you know, this whole, this whole, um, taxing or pressurizing or, nudging in mm. the kind of the pop psychology mm. sense of individuals and individual families towards certain um, health behaviors mm. is fundamentally unequal. It mm. is, it serves to reinforce certain forms of inside and outside exclusion and inclusion, um, either along class lines um, or along social and cultural lines or both because certainly you know i i come from an, an extremely privileged background i mean i have all the social capital in the world and um my family has has done extremely well and has been extremely lucky but at the same time i was you know middle class in an upper class world yeah. where organic food and kale were a thing yeah. before they were mainstream yeah. um the first time my mom and i cooked kale was it was hilarious because we didn't know what to do. Mm. We didn't know how to make kale mm. not taste like dirt. Um, and th there is there is always a class element to this, um, especially when you're talking about regulating individuals for the purpose of creating a particular public health agenda. Mm. Um, the, the working across scales here mm. is um, some some public health academics would say it's ineffective it doesn't work mm. um others would say it just reinforces the differences mm. um and others might see it as as an area for discussion and mm. and debate mm. Mm. yeah um, i think it's it's sort of slightly ironic that we've spent such a large part of today's episode talking about the sugar tax because one of the reasons why i wanted to do a podcast episode on the budget was that I was getting increasingly annoyed by the amount of space mainstream media outlets like the BBC were giving to the sugar tax when I think for both of us there is much more that is much worse yes. in this budget. Um, but I think it is useful and important to think about the ideologically problematic positions that certain public health policies and fiscal policies to promote public health have uh, in relation to other factors like class and race. Yes. What I think is so 
interesting and ironic um, and almost farcical about the sugar tax is it was announced at the same time as um, an education policy in the budget which will move funds away from state-funded schools towards privately funded academies, um, which is quite a British, this is a British thing. Um, education works very, very differently in the United States and in India as well, mm. I assume. Um, but what's interesting about the academy network framework and how academies operate in the UK is that they are almost unregulated compared to state-run and local authority-run schools. And so we have we see this regulation of children's diets mm. and lunch boxes happening, but then academies don't need to provide any sort of dietary mm. um, or lunches or breakfasts that follow any sort of dietary no. guidelines. I think we probably should give some kind of context about about uh, primary and secondary school education yeah. uh, in Britain, and actually specifically England, because this this policy, as you said earlier on, in a, in a country that has had devolution, uh, the education policy applies only to England and not to Scotland, Wales, and Northern Ireland. Um, but the previous government before before the Conservatives came into power in coalition with the Liberal Democrats at the time. So under under the previous Labour government, there was this policy of taking schools that were deemed to be failing or underperforming, taking them out of the local education authorities' control, local council, local government's control, and to turn them into academies which could be run by uh, private organisations, faith groups, collective parent groups any 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 group could bid to run a particular school and these schools were then completely unaccountable to the general population because they were outside local educa education authority and that was bad enough but what the government has now proposed for England is by 2020 for most schools and some schools might get an extension to 2022 all schools will now be forced to become academies so all schools get taken out of local education authority essentially get privatized um and in terms of regulations for curriculum in terms of regulations for teaching qualifications in terms of regulations for um, selection procedures none of that is accountable the schools are not accountable to anyone for any of those things um, and it is a huge change. It is a huge change that uh, was not in the Conservative Party's manifesto. So the government has the, the party has no mandate. The government has no mandate to do this. Um, it was like uh, a similar issue that we might also talk about in a bit: the junior doctors' contracts in the NHS. It's an admission of failure on the part of the government to the point where they realised that they would not be able to bring this in through discussion and compromise and agreement. So they're forcing it in. Schools will not, no longer have a choice. Schools will have to become academies. And there have been study after study after study that shows that academies don't perform any better. Students don't do any better in these schools. Um, so it is, 
it is not about saving money because they don't save money. It is not about better performances because students don't perform better. It is about privatizing secondary education. And it is about redrawing uh, the boundaries in terms of civil society and the social contract and who matters and who who doesn't as, as, as an individual child. Um, so when schools were under local education authority, lo local education control, the local authority had a duty of care to ensure that every child in their area would have access to school, would have would have a school place. The academy has no no such duty of care. So what will happen effectively is that if there is a student who is difficult, or let's say there is a student who has severe disabilities and is therefore more expensive to teach, uh, or there's a student who has who is uh, comes from a, a particular troubled background and is therefore more difficult to control and more expensive to control, the academy doesn't have to include them. But the local education authority will still have a duty of care with no budget anymore. So they will have to find some kind of a dumping ground to put all of these children. While, of course, the people in power all send their kids to private school anyway. Yes, it's interesting that the people who are announcing this change are people who never went to these kinds of schools anyway. Yes. They, I mean, we've talked before about how this particular government is especially interesting in that they are all privately educated. Yes. Um, and all of their children are privately educated. So for them, it is especially... It's especially detached, um, and according to, to many, especially cruel, because they themselves are not subject to any of any of these changes. Mm. And it is happening at the same time that the government is finding money for other things. So the government doesn't have money for uh, maintaining disability benefit. The government doesn't have money to uh, pay junior doctors a decent wage. The, the government doesn't have money to properly run schools, but the government does have money to top up savings. Uh, we mentioned earlier on the, the lifetime ISA. ISA stands for Individual Savings Account. So the government is actively encouraging middle-class people. And let's face it, in the current economy, it is only middle-class people who can afford to save. Yes. Uh, the government is af encouraging middle-class people to save by giving them more money, by giving first-time buyers more money. And, you know... We are we are the demographic of people who will get this money. Yes. You know, if we save, if we decide to buy a house, the government loves us. But we shouldn't be the people who get extra money from the government. We don't need it. We are doing fine. Yes. Um, and uh, someone on Facebook put this meme. The, the, the simplest way to understand the budget is, are you a friend of George Osborne? If so, you will be fine. If not, you're screwed. <laughs> and it is sort of that, right? It is a budget that is restructuring society to the point where certain assumptions that were made in Britain in the post-war welfare state period about how it is the job of society to make sure everybody gets a decent chance, it's the job of society to make sure everyone has a house to live in and every kid has a school to go to and higher education, whether it's academic or vocational, 
has to be paid by society because it is better for society that people get educated. All of these assumptions are disappearing, have disappeared, to the point where the government has clearly decided that it only needs to represent a certain class of people. And as long as its policies benefit that class of people, everybody else can be left behind, everybody else can be forgotten. And the restructuring of the welfare state, the increasingly violent policing of health eating, um, the cuts to child benefit and disability um, benefit and housing benefit, you know, there's a whole other bedroom tax policy which we haven't even talked about. All of these things are designed to marginalise working class people even more. Yes. What I think is quite interesting as well is is the post-World War II welfare state ideologies, while at the time subject to serious criticism as well. I mean, it was very, very difficult to get the NHS up and running um, at the time. So there's always a fight um, it, for the welfare state. Um, the ideas underpinning the welfare state are also essentially selfish ones. Mm. You know, there is a, it is about sustainability. It is about creating a society that can sustain itself over multiple generations. It's about um, having a, a particular standard of, of health care in order to keep laborers working for as long as possible, um, but then also providing retirement for them so that that people don't end up you know, dying homeless on the street when they're too old to work. I mean, it's 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 a an oddly mainstream capitalist idea. I mean, both both Marx has written about about this. Althusser has written about this about the the fact that everybody recognizes that for an economic system to survive, it has to propagate. It has to create the next generation of labor, and the classic welfare state after after World War Two was designed to do that it was it was designed to be able to reproduce the next generation of labor yes. so that capitalism can carry on exactly and we also saw the the development of a particular um you know ideological construction of an identity of a, of the laboring class the working class as as a particular um identity a way of being a culture um that you know came along with with the union system and the industry of the unions and so there's there was a cultural ideology that that went along with the welfare state um, and so it is about keeping a working class going it, it was about reproducing the working class yes um, which is which I think we forget when we talk yes. about the welfare state um, that it isn't just it, it's not a selfless um, system designed to take care of individuals. It's it's designed as a system that can sustain itself over time, which makes the the current ideological system seem so strange um, because it is essentially saying that it's doing the same thing. It's creating a sustainable budget without a deficit. It's saying it's um, not wasting public resources. It's conserving public resources. You know, it's it's saying as well that it is creating a, an economic system that will be viable for the future, but doing it in in a, in a very very different way, basically by trying to erase the working class. Yes, 
I mean, it's, it's, it's sort of oddly Victorian in that sense, right? That The idea that there are certain sections of the population who can be ignored. Uh, a lot has been written about uh, the ridiculousness of David Cameron's big idea of the big society, where you can take out the socially sanctioned, s- centralised, state-run, accountable public sector welfare net, and you take that safety net away and you can replace it with essentially charity. You can replace it with faith organizations and charitable groups who could do the same thing. Yeah. Um I mean there 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 are lots of there are lots of problems with that. firstly, possibly most importantly, the idea that social welfare is not the same as charity. That those two are conceptually very different things. The idea that uh it is your right as a citizen to be able to get help in order to find somewhere to live if you don't have anywhere to live. That that is very different from a church or a charity charitable organization saying, we think you deserve this charity and therefore we are giving it to you. Those two things are very different. But also the idea that any charitable sector can have the resources to be able to uh, seamlessly transition into replacing state-supported welfare is nonsense. It is such it is such an obvious nonsense that it is difficult to explain how effective the government has been at convincing people of that. Yes. Well, the big society, David Cameron dropped it yes. quite soon after because... He dropped the words. He didn't yeah. drop the policy. No, the... the the fiscal policy has has continued. Yes. I think that's probably not a bad place to end. To leave it. We'll to come back to some of these themes we will though, when we talk about um, some of the topics in the next couple of weeks. Yes. Um, we had felt over the last few weeks that we have been a little bit unfair in not giving enough attention to, to the British government. Yeah. Um, so we we wanted to show them our love. We were letting them off lightly. Yes. What's interesting, though, and I think um, I think it's it's really fascinating what is happening in the government. We've given all of this time to the budget and the and the economic ideology of of the majority government, but the British government and the various devolved governments have very fascinating and intricate debates amongst themselves, and there are ideological battles happening in the UK right now. And so we we have talked about the mainstream hegemonic discourse, but the current leader of the Labour Party, Jeremy Corbyn, has shaken things up. Scotland as well is a very, very different kind of a place. Um, And so there's there's a lot of interesting things happening politically in the UK right now. And a lot of it we'll come back to in later episodes uh, in terms of national identity vis-a-vis Europe and the the, the EU um, referendum, which is coming in Britain, um, so we'll we'll cover that in in more detail in a future episode. Yes. For the moment, thanks for listening. Um, as usual, let us know what you think. Um, we're on Twitter. We're on Twitter. We're on Facebook. We're on iTunes. If yes. you get your um, podcast from iTunes, then do rate us, review us. It helps other people find us. And hope you've enjoyed it. And we look forward to chatting to you again in a week. Yes. Bye. Bye. We hope you enjoyed this episode. 
I have been Hannah Fitzpatrick. And I have been Anindya Richardry. You can contact me on Twitter at Dr. H. Fitz. And me at Dr. Anindya R. Our music was provided by the Agrarians, and this has been State of the Theory. Thank you.